A brief word from one of our sponsors. The holidays are always the busiest time of the year and the list of errands you have to do seems endless. I use stamps.com to send letters as part of my work as a journalist, but as we gear up for the holidays, it's especially helpful. Stamps.com brings all the services of the US Post Office right to your desktop, buy and print official US postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. It couldn't be easier. Print postage any day, any time. Stamps.com is always open. Stamps.com not only saves you time, but it saves you money too. Stamps.com helps you print the right amount of postage every time. Never overpay again. And with Stamps.com, you get discounts on postage you can't even get at the post office. With all the time and money you'll save, Stamps.com is the best gift you can give yourself this holiday season. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without the long-term commitments. To go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in DMT. That's stamps.com, enter DMT. On Tuesday, September the 8th, 1998, in Austin, Texas, the boyfriend of Cinder Bartz alerted police when he hadn't heard from her. When they entered her house in the Barton Hills neighborhood of the city, officers discovered a gruesome scene. Bart's lay in a pool of blood in the hallway. She died from blunt force injuries, stab wounds and a skull fracture. Evidence showed she'd struggled with her attacker and attempted to flee, but that she'd been repeatedly beaten with an iron skillet until she died. They found Michelle Fulweiler, her roommate, in the master bedroom. She also had died from blunt force injuries and stab wounds, and she'd been strangled. Bart's nine-year-old daughter, Stacey Mitchell, was found tied to her mother's bed with a pair of underwear, and she, too, had been strangled. Soon, detectives began to home in on 37-year-old Louis Perez, who was Fulweiler's boyfriend. A bloody palm print next to Bart's body matched Perez's fingerprints, and Perez was arrested on September the 10th at a convenience store in South Austin. At his trial the following year, Perez took the stand in his own defence, testifying that he was innocent. He admitted he'd spent the night at Fulweiler's house, but that he'd left the next morning at about 8am. The jury deliberated for five hours before finding him guilty of murdering the three women. He was sentenced to die by lethal injection and has been waiting on Texas death row ever since. I've been trying to discover whether Resendiz was telling me the truth when he confessed to these additional murders. In the last episode, serial killer expert Jack Levin told me it's unlikely that Resendiz was a false confessor. Meanwhile, Chuck Weaver, an expert in false memory, was less certain, but he said it's perfectly reasonable to assume that Resendiz killed more people than we know about. But I'm not the only person trying to work out whether the railroad killer killed more people than was initially thought. In this episode, I'm looking at another murder, not one that he confessed to me about, but one to which he's been strongly linked. Is Luis Perez innocent, and could Resendiz have committed the murders for which Luis may one day pay the ultimate price? And what can this case tell me about my investigation into the taped confessions? This is the Dead Man Talking podcast with me, Alex Hannaford. Riley.
You keep his photo um, yes. on the on yeah. the site all the time. Yeah, yeah. This this picture never never leaves. I can't tell you how many people have walked into this house went over Thanksgiving or Easter or whatever dinner, and they want to take his picture off so that we can clear the table. And it's like, nope, he's going to stay right there. Delia Meyer is Lewis's sister, and I met her at the family home in the Barton Hills neighborhood in Austin. Since her brother was found guilty of murder, she's been campaigning tirelessly for his freedom. He's had several execution dates, and fortunately, each one of them was withdrawn within a day because, uh, you know, there's just a lot of questions still still left. I've known Delia for a long time, and I've known about Lewis's story for a long time. And um, I wanted to talk to her because she is not only passionate about conveying the fact that she thinks her brother is innocent and, and why, but she's also convinced that Angel Resendiz could have been responsible. I'm, 20 years is a long time. Yeah, how, have you, yeah. how have you coped in, in for 20 years? You know what, how do it's you cope? been really, really hard. It's been really hard because Lewis left 10 children behind and I have had to take care of those 10 kids. I asked her to take me back to the day of the murder. On September the 10th of 1998, it was all over the news. I turned the television on and there was my brother on all the channels as the prime suspect of this triple homicide. And of course, I was just, you know, stunned and just shocked and couldn't comprehend. And then Lewis called and he said, I didn't do that. Delia gave me details of these horrific murders and her brother's movements on that day. At 5.30ish, when my brother rolled up on the house, he started ringing the doorbell and nobody answered. And he took off his shoes, he took off his shirt, I think the girls had white carpet, and he walked in and I believe that while he was ringing the doorbell and banging on the door, that the murderer had time to hide in a closet or in in the back of a kitchen was a pantry. Um, and I believe that maybe Cinda heard that bell ringing and made her way back around and that's where she was found. So when Lewis walked in, he immediately picked her up and she scratched him and then he turned around and walked out the door. But the murderer dead bolted the door behind my brother. So the murderer had hidden somewhere in that home while my brother went in and walked out. When I first heard that Lewis basically walked into the house, found the body and then ran away, of course, my first reaction is probably what anyone's is, which is why on earth would anybody do that unless they were guilty? What does Lewis say was the reason that he'd, he'd come in and seen the victim and then left? He was scared. He said when he walked in and he found Cinda on the floor, he didn't really know. He ran to her immediately, he picked her up, and he asked her what happened, what happened. And then he set her down. And in that action, he left this palm print. And uh, he said that he just got scared and he didn't want anything to do with whatever it was. And he turned around and he walked away. Did he regret doing that because of how it looked? Very much so. I believe in my heart that my brother has thought about this every single day, that he is sorry that he left Cinda on the floor. He didn't know the other girls were murdered. He's very sorry that he didn't call for help. But she told me there were other factors at play which influenced Lewis's decision to walk away from the crime scene. 
One, he had not paid his child support, and there was a warrant out for his arrest for the child support. The other thing was they had all been doing cocaine the night before. He was scared, and he walked away. But now to the reason I got involved with this, Angel Resendez. In the years after Lewis's conviction, the Perez family began to suspect his involvement. It might have been my sister who was the one who said maybe it was this uh, railroad serial killer that, you know, everybody had heard about in Texas because he had murdered so many people already. The young man found brutally bludgeoned to death along a railway track. It looked like somebody had just been brutally beaten about the head. I was able to talk to several attorneys and I was able to say, look, this railroad killer guy, because of the proximity of the other murders, I just felt in my heart that it could have possibly been Angel Maturino Resendiz. In addition to their suspicions, Resendiz had previously claimed to have committed some murders in Austin. Again, he was vague with the details. He did confess to killing some girls in Austin. And he said one of them was black and one of them was white and one was fat and one was skinny. And in our particular case, the little girl was African-American the two women were Anglo, and so he said, I killed a black one and a white one. I think that he just might have gotten a little bit confused. He never talked about killing the little girl, so they couldn't use that in court. So they, the judge never got to hear that testimony, which was extremely unfortunate at the time. The problem was Resendiz was about to be executed, and with that, the family would lose their chance to hear more details of the murders that he claimed to have committed in Austin. Details they thought may exonerate Lewis. Perez's attorneys filed a motion to stay Resendiz's execution based on the fact that they said the murders were eerily similar to Resendiz's modus operandi. The victims had been bludgeoned to death, they happened near railroad tracks, and at a time when Resendez was at large. I mean, that stems directly from us fighting and, and insisting that they try to keep Angel Maturino alive so that he could confess to these murders and or any other murders that, that he had committed. But the motion failed. Rick Perry, who'd been the governor of Texas since 2000 and was governor when Resendez was executed, signed the death warrant. This is the same Rick Perry who's currently in the Trump administration. Perry oversaw more executions than any other governor in US history. And by 2013, Texas had become the first state to execute 500 people since the death penalty was reinstated in the US in the 70s. At that point, there were so many executions. There was one or two executions every week. I just don't think that they wanted to mess with it, and I don't think they wanted to take the time or the energy or the effort to look into it. They wanted him dead. They had, the whole world hated him. Resendez was executed um, in June 2006. Yeah. How did you feel when you heard? You know, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated because I thought for sure that Angel Maturino Resendez had murdered our three girls. We got in Delia's car so she could take me to the locations involved. You pull over down here, baby. Yeah, I'm gonna just pull over right here. Okay. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna let John out. All right. She said the railroad track from the family home is about half a mile. We're on the freight train track now, Delia. So, I'm sorry, I'm just a little frazzled. I just remember 
that for years after these murders occurred, that every time I heard this train whistle go by, it just jolted me out of my sleep. Just a real painful place to be because if he did do this, this is how close it is to our neighborhood, how close it is to our home. How slow do the trains come, they come through? They, they, they stop. They come there. by very slowly. They, they, they have to turn there. They generally, you know, stop through downtown or go very, very slowly. They're long trains. They're slow trains. And this is where he did a lot of killing. We continued on our drive around Barton Hills, and Delia showed me the house where the murders took place. And this is it right here. This is the house? Mm-hmm. On the day of the trial, that this gentleman came up to me and he said, my father saw a scrawny Mexican walk, walking down the street that day. And uh, I said, why didn't he tell somebody? Why didn't he call the police? And he said he was afraid to get involved. So, you know, my brother is anything but scrawny. So at least we have some eyewitness of a possible culprit, you know, and, of course, Anel Maturino was thin and wiry. And, Small, five foot six, yeah. I think. And we actually came and knocked on all of these doors to see if we could find the family that said that they saw a scrawny Mexican man walking down this street around 7.30 a.m. that day, the day of the, the murders. And you couldn't find them. And we could not find, find them. Dead Man Talking is supported by Simply Safe, the home security system that's ready for anything that gets thrown at it. Simply Safe is easy to set up and easy to use. You order the system online, place it in your home, and your home's protected 24-7. It's that easy. Even if a storm knocks out your power, it's safe. Your Wi-Fi goes down, it's safe. Say an intruder cuts out your landline or your power, Simply Safe still calls the police and notifies you right away. Simply Safe is good at what it does. They've been in business for a decade now, and Dead Man Talking is proud to have them as a partner. Do us both a favour. When you do check out Simply Safe, go to simplysafe.com slash DMT. Let them know we sent you. That's simplysafe.com slash DMT to protect your home and family today. Delia has good reason to feel aggrieved. There were all sorts of problems with the Luis Perez case. It was found that evidence had been withheld in court. This had led to a potential Brady violation. A Brady violation is when prosecutors withhold evidence that's favourable to the defence, evidence that might even exonerate the defendant. But Delia had a particular gripe with the Travis County District Attorney. Rosemary Lemberg. She got drunk. She went to jail. When I heard that on television, it just sent chills down my body. This is the woman that is representing my brother. She was swerving and driving drunk with a bottle of vodka on the front seat and a bottle of Listerine and was driving in the bicycle lane for over a mile, videotaped, and then she gets out of the car and starts screaming at the cop and spitting at him and kicking him, and they had to strap her down, and they put her in the jail, and she went to rehab. So after that, the attorneys went in, and that, those were the first few boxes of evidence that we knew that had been withheld. They found these first few boxes. There's just some some very bad techniques that have been used over the years, and uh, it's just keystone cops, and, and it's horrific because they are playing with innocent people. 
First, here at 10, there are new questions about nearly 1,000 criminal convictions in Travis County. The district attorney's office tells KXAN they've sent out 998 notices to defendants whose cases may have been compromised because of the way DNA was analyzed. This includes 652 inmates in Texas, and six of those are awaiting execution. She also had an issue with the police officer involved in the investigation of Lewis's case, a police officer who's recently been promoted. I am livid. I am absolutely livid that this Sergeant Brian Manley, who made it up the ranks on the backs of my brother, is going to be the new chief of police of Austin, Texas, because they have totally mishandled this case, and they have an innocent man who's going to be executed unless somebody stands up and says something about that. Delia is still hopeful that things are going to get better and that Lewis will eventually be released. I'm not going to stop. My brother did not murder his three friends. He didn't murder anybody. He never hurt anybody. He's never hurt anybody in his life. Austin police answered questions today about concerns with the currently closed DNA crime lab. I think that they should absolutely go back and test the DNA because now we have much better standards and, you know, much better DNA capabilities. Luis Castro Perez is on Texas death row, convicted of killing two women and a nine-year-old girl nearly two decades ago. Now, some of the DNA evidence is under review. As I said before, I've known Delia for a long time, and I've never ceased to be amazed at how much passion she has and how much she hasn't given up on her brother. She just fights tirelessly for him. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Thank you, Delia. It's, uh... That was interesting. It seems like there was definitely shoddy police work involved and she's been hanging on to this and the fact that there are so many holes in this case for all these years and she's so hopeful that something finally is going to break in the case and she's going to finally see her brother again outside of the prison. Whether Resendez was involved is another matter altogether. If you can tell me who you are and what you do. My name is Chase Hoffberger. I'm the news editor at the Austin Chronicle. A couple of years ago, Chase Hofberger wrote a story about Lewis asking, is he innocent? In the story, Chase also talks about a possible connection of Angel Resendez to the crime. Did the police automatically think that it must have been a, a, a boyfriend or something? Why was Perez um, of interest to them? Well, I mean, that that is sort of crime scene 101. It's naturally the first reaction or, or lead that uh, an investigative unit will take. It was great talking to Delia, but it's fair to say she's probably not totally unbiased when it comes to her brother's case. Chase Hofberger went back to the original court transcripts and forensically combed through Lewis's case, so I wanted to get his take. Chase explained what Lewis had told the court that he found when he entered the house. He opened the door, and that's where he saw Cinda with the uh, skillet on her face, and, and so he said from there that he ran. If I was a detective, that would be kind of a red flag to me. This guy's saying he came across the murder scene. This dying woman who he knew um, scratched him in the face and he ran. The detectives are like, we've got him, basically. Uh, yeah, they did. I think that that if you see a murder scene and you don't call the police, the, the police are going to wonder why you didn't call the police. During the trial, the Travis County District Attorney told the court about Perez's fingerprints and DNA throughout the house in order to get a conviction. They would talk about how his uh, fingerprints were all over the house, but when you think about it sort of in the context of who he was and what his relationship to that house was, 
His fingerprints being on the remote control is not a really bad thing. His fingerprints being on beer bottles is not really a bad thing. But they didn't find his DNA, specifically his DNA, under uh, her fingernails because I think I think you wrote that it was a one in fourteen chance that the DNA under his fingernails, under her fingernails, came from a Hispanic person, but not specifically Perez. So his his DNA is all over the house, but not specifically under her fingernails. Not specifically under her fingernails, exactly. One of the prosecution's big arguments was they really rode on this cocaine thing because some cocaine was found in the bodies of the women. They concocted this theory that Lewis had snorted cocaine all night and been on this giant bender and gotten mad at the women for snorting his cocaine also because that cocaine was supposed to be used for small-time drug deals. And he got so mad and was on such a cocaine high that he just killed them, which isn't plausible, really. The crime scene was not secured as well. It was a pretty shoddy crime scene. This was sort of before cops had a great diligence towards DNA and evidence. They they were sort of handling keys without gloves. They weren't testing certain things. There were some cigarettes outside uh, that were unusual that weren't being tested. You know, they were trying to punch an organ to sort of figure out time of death, and they punched the wrong side of the body. To me, it's obvious that Perez's DNA and fingerprints are going to be all over the house. That goes without saying. But it's shocking that evidence was missed, that the cigarette butts weren't picked up outside. Why did the defence bring up Resendez's name? At the time, Resendez was a pretty favourable target for murders near train tracks. There were also some other circumstances. The way that the bodies were sort of concealed or wrapped up was a trademark of his. The women weren't shot, they were beaten, and that was something that he would do as well. So that's something that I thought was interesting about the Perez case was whoever murdered those people didn't take the weapons with them to do it. So, And that was something that Resendez never did. Right. You, know, you know, he always, he said to me in the interview, you know, he didn't go there thinking, I'm going to murder this person. Did anyone take this seriously in the trial? I mean, did the prosecution just completely dismiss this? It went away pretty quickly, yeah. I mean, it wasn't pursued. It wasn't actually viable. But what about the Resendez confession that he killed two people in Austin? Basically, Resendez said that he killed one fat one and one skinny one in Austin, but he wasn't specific. It wasn't specific enough, I think. It wasn't something to really pursue. And so, you know, you sort of wonder... What can a defense or an appellate attorney work with compared to sort of what the public discourse can work with to actually overturn a conviction? You need something more than this guy who was saying that he was killing a lot of people and uh, the generalities of one fat one, one skinny one are not, maybe not enough. So much evidence at the scene, including the murder weapon, went untested for DNA and no blood from any of the victims was ever found on Perez's clothing. They're still, even today, requiring post-conviction DNA testing on six items from the crime scene. So there's still a question mark, right, over over the DNA. Yeah, and among those is the handle of the skillet that was used to kill someone, uh, which is pretty wild. Um, you would think that would be the first thing tested rather than the remote control. But they're still working on getting that. That's sort of what the Brady evidence, you know, the possibility of the Brady evidence that... <laughs> that among other things, the handle of one of the objects that was used to kill somebody was not tested for fingerprints or DNA. It was good to talk to Chase. He knows this case inside out. But even though 
the evidence against Lewis seems flimsy at best, and his family, is, as far as I'm concerned, his family uh, are right to pursue every avenue available to them to try and get this looked at again in more detail. It seems to me that the evidence to say that Resendez was responsible is really circumstantial. Thank you, Chase. I appreciate you doing this. Good. Talking to me. Very, Absolutely. very, it's fascinating stuff. Dead Man Talking is made possible through support from Robinhood. Robinhood's an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, options and cryptos, all commission free. It's a non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with confidence. It's really easy to use and amazingly, there are no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission. Trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Learn how to invest as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks and track favorite companies with personalized newsfeed. What's more, there are custom notifications for price movements, so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford or Sprint to help build your portfolio. So sign up at deadman.robinhood.com. That's deadman.robinhood.com. Hey, Lisa. Hey. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me all right? I can. Perfect. Lisa Olson is a, an investigative journalist at the Houston Chronicle, and she had interviewed Resendez around about the same time I did. She told me initially on Twitter that she'd interviewed Resendez precisely because Perez's legal team had thought that he may have committed the crime for which their client was on death row. Lisa interviewed Resendez at the Polanski unit in Livingston, Texas, the same place I did, and she went to talk to him specifically about the Perez case. Resendez sat there, and um, he was quiet. He was, um, he seemed almost excessively subdued, as if perhaps he was on some sort of strong drugs. He already knew I was there because of the Perez case. He pretty much flat out said he didn't commit those murders that he would never kill a child. Hmm. Um, and again, as part of my due diligence before I went to go interview him, I had contacted an expert um, who had looked at his profile for the FBI at one point, who had also said that Resendez did not target children. He in fact saw himself as a defender of children. Um, and so this murder did not fit him in that way. No, it didn't fit him. In fact, you'll recall from episode one the detailed psychological assessment provided by Dr. Bruce Cohen, who'd spent time with Resendez before his trial. Resendez told Cohen that he sometimes chose his victims precisely because he believed they were being cruel to children. In Dr. Benton's house, he said that he knew that she was doing experiments on children and that she was torturing children. And it did appear to be the case that on her computer, she had been working on a presentation on birth defects and that she did have pictures of children uh, on the computer. He said that in some houses, and he estimated this was about 20 houses, he actually left the house without waking anybody up or injuring any of the residents. And he said typically this was because there had been children in the house. And he said that something in me can't hurt children since children are innocent. 
while he was on death row, other prisoners tried to pin crimes on Resendez as well, crimes that he refused to take the rap for. He didn't say anything to me negative about Perez. I think he knew that this, these allegations were not coming from Perez, who he probably knew from being on death row. It struck me that this was completely the opposite of someone like Henry Lee Lucas, who had confessed to thousands of murders while he was in prison uh, and wanted to be the most prolific serial killer of all time. Resendez was not like that. It's interesting to me that he confessed to other murders but denied this one. What does that actually say about what his motives are here in confessing or not confessing to specific crimes? My hunch is the same as it has always been, that he was telling me the truth. In investigating the Luis Perez case, Lisa also looked into the murder of Daryl Colahaco. And like me, she found the Resendez confession to this killing to be far more compelling. She spoke to Les Ribnick to find out about this. Les was Resendez's trial attorney. And he showed me photos from the crime scene and talked to me about how Resendez had described those kinds of details that were very, very uh, vivid and corresponded with the photos of the crime scene. Mm. Certainly the MO in that case, the idea that, um, you know, the general MO of, of Resendez going after an adult male or female and sort of a random attack in a house near a railroad track, a bludgeoning death, um, all those things were there. Bizarrely, by investigating a murder that Resendez had never taken the blame for, has given me more evidence, really, uh, that he was telling the truth about the ones that he said he did do. And it was interesting to me that Lisa, without any prompting from me, brought the conversation around to the Daryl Colahaco case. I wasn't actually sure that she even knew about the Colahaco case. She brought it up and she said, you know, essentially, forget the Perez case. You know, yes, he, he's got a, a good claim of, of, of innocence. He may be innocent, but Resendez probably had nothing to do with this particular case. The one that you should be looking at and the one that really um, shocked me at the time was the case of Daryl Colahaco. In the next episode of the Dead Man Talking podcast, we go back to the tape and back to the murder of Daryl Colahaco. After months of trying to contact him, I finally heard back from Andres Mascaro. He, you'll remember, was Diamantina's former lover, who was also convicted of Daryl's murder and has been in prison serving a life sentence for the last 20 years. He finally wrote back to me a very short note just saying, come and see me. I went and interviewed him in prison, and he had some shocking things to say. From DMT Media and Audio Boom, this is the Dead Man Talking podcast. If you want to find out what happens next, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favourite listening destination. And if you've enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and review us too. Dead Man Talking is presented by me, Alex Hannaford, and the producer and sound engineer is Peter Sale. Connor Tolony is our researcher and production assistant, and 
thanks as always to Goodnight Texas who are responsible for our theme song don't forget to check out the band's other stuff on Spotify and their website is hi we are goodnighttexashowareyou.com don't forget we post developments to the story on our Facebook group and we really love it when you get in touch so that address is facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash dead man talking you can also tweet us at dead man podcast or email us at dead man talking podcast at outlook.com 